Hello and welcome to the first episode of Downtown Dialogues, Theatrical Outfit's brand new podcast that explores the deeper themes and questions behind our work. I'm Matt Torney, Theatrical Outfit's artistic director, and I'm recording this today in the dressing room of our theatre, right in the heart of downtown Atlanta. This episode features a panel discussion hosted by the wonderful Gail O'Neill that was recorded immediately following a reading of British playwright Lucy Kirkwood's play, The Children. The Children has been starting conversations all over the world and tackles questions about climate change, personal responsibility, the duty older generations have towards those that follow, and most importantly, where do personal rights end? and obligations begin. We live streamed the reading on Thursday, September 24th, 2020, and immediately afterwards, Gail jumped right into the hard questions with an amazing panel of experts. Um, For those of you that missed the live reading, uh, there is a full synopsis of the play in the notes below, but I'll give you a quick rundown. The Children takes place in a cottage on the British coast, right near the site of a recent nuclear disaster. A nuclear power station has been damaged by an earthquake and tsunami and is contaminating the countryside and in danger of spilling nuclear waste into the sea. Two retired nuclear engineers who used to work at the plant, Robin and Hazel, are living in a cottage right outside the exclusion zone and trying to stay healthy. They are visited by Rose, an old colleague from the power station who they haven't seen in 38 years, who arrives at their door with a strange and important request. She is assembling a group of scientists and engineers all over the age of 65 who can go into the disaster zone and clean up the power station. She wants them to relieve the young cleanup crew who are working there now, many of whom have young children and are at the beginning of their lives, and she would like Robin and Hazel to join her. So, tackling the meaty questions at the heart of this play are Gail and her amazing panel. Susan Booth, director of the reading, who is also the artistic director of the Alliance Theatre right here in Atlanta. Paul Root-Walpa, the director of the Centre for Ethics at Emory University, who specialises in bioethics. And Pam Longobardi, a visual artist whose work focuses on the environmental impact of plastics and human consumption. And Pam is also a distinguished professor at GSU. We join the discussion right after the introduction. Gail is talking to Susan about the challenges and opportunities of doing live theatre over Zoom. Enjoy. All right, I'm just visualizing the typical Zoom chat where it's hard to know who is speaking when, never mind when you have actors, silences matter, the words matter, the timing matters, and you interjecting every now and again. How was that experience for you? You know, you, you become accustomed to it, right? I mean, this is, this is one of the mediums by which we make theater now. And I have learned Uh, to calibrate my participation by focusing not on what we can't do, but on what we can do. And I loved Matt's introduction where he said, focus on the words. Right. And these are three actors. It's a beautiful piece of writing. And these are three actors who lift up the words like nobody's business. So that made the work Mm -hmm. kind of delightful. Yeah. Has seeing it in this forum been any different from seeing it in rehearsals? Did your actors surprise you? Did they do things differently this evening? 
you know, we had a, um, we thought we were going to be on a different platform than Zoom, and we pivoted um, about an hour before we went live. Um, so the fact that they all kept their wits about them and delivered handsomely was um, thrilling. <laughs> Paul, tell me your response to the play, what you think it's about and what your, what your takeaway or takeaways have been. You know, one of the reasons I love the theater is because it always astounds me the ways in which it's relevant that may that were never even in the mind of the author. I've spent the last few months working on COVID and working on COVID policy. And one of the big issues that I and my fellow bioethics across the country, because I speak to them all, were grappling with was the policies that we would put into place when there were scarce resources. What if there were no ICU beds? What if there were no ventilators? And one of the big discussions that was had across the country was, do we privilege the young over the old? Mm -hmm. Do we give the ventilators, if you have a 70-year-old a, a and a 40-year-old who both need a ventilator and there's only one available ventilator, is it ethical to give it to the younger person over the older person? And so I've spent the last few months having that ethical conversation. And of course, that's at the heart. One of the many ethical issues at the heart of this play is older people feeling that they've lived a life and that they need to give younger people a chance and taking a risk and allowing the younger people to um, escape that risk. So, uh, you know, it's just, it's remarkable to, remarkable to me sometimes the way life imitates art. Mm -hmm. Did you and your colleagues, fellow bioethicists, reach a conclusion about whether it's appropriate to even, first of all, to have, not to have the discussion, but to come to a conclusion and yeah. to ask people to make a sacrifice for younger people? Well, you have to come to a conclusion. These aren't theoretical problems. Every medical center has to have a policy. Every Many states have state policies. What's so interesting is that some states have said, yes, we're going to give a scarce resource to a younger person over an older, while other policies in institutions and states say, no, you may not privilege a younger person over an older person. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Susan, is it unethical? Mm -hmm. Is what Rose did unethical? Asking friends to make the sacrifice she was willing to make. And... Is it unethical for someone like Hazel to want to live as old as her granny, who she said was 103? She comes from a line of long livers. You know, I always hesitate when I've got a professional ethicist next to me, but I'll wait in. Um, I think we have personal ethos, all of us. And where it becomes friction causing is when we try to visit our code upon another. I think there is an argument that is made in the play about the childlike desire to have everything one wants, whether that is stuff or whether that is time. It is, as children, we want what we want and we expect to get it. And the maturation process ought teach us some wisdom around thinking contextually? I don't know that it mm -hmm. does. So I'm dodging, I'm dodging your question. I <laughs> believe 
I could, I could argue either of those women's points convincingly. I think the problem is they were trying to solve for one another. Pam, welcome to the conversation. Hi, I'm, I was <laughs> listening on YouTube and then I realized that you guys were streaming Zoom through YouTube and so I jumped over here. So um, I've been here the whole time, but I'm glad I finally got in your window here. Welcome to the space. <laughs> Pam, you, you, first of all, tell, tell our audience the work that you're doing as an artist and how it overlaps with environmentalism and questions of what humans are entitled to and why what we want, what we want is maybe unethical, as Susan was saying. Yeah, so I work with ocean plastic and um, as an art medium, and I, I literally go around the world and I find heavily inundated locations and I clean those locations, I gather the material, and then I structure it into um, sculptures and installations um, that sort of resonate in terms of these materials that we know and we see every day, but they are um, in some ways invisible to us and we don't really ever follow their full lifespan. So um, when I was listening to Susan speaking, um about the idea of we want what we want i think this material plastic is somehow some projection of our ego in a way um or maybe it is the id you know maybe it's this sort of wanton out of control child who um knows how to do all these things and therefore you know we we feel like we're you know sort of remaking the world we've made nearly everything that already exists in plastic and now that we find, you know, it's not going anywhere. In fact, it's clogging up, you know, the very lifeblood of the planet, the oceans. Um, we, we need to kind of rethink that. So I was thinking about that um, as far as the idea of altruism. And, you know, I, I think that Rose was kind of representing... Um, what might be a kind of recessive gene in, in the human species, which is the, the gene of the altruist. Um, we don't often sacrifice ourselves for the greater good for others or for the future. Susan, speak to that. Was Rose an altruist or was she, she said, hoping to come back and see Hazel die a long, slow death? <laughs> Boy, when these women pulled out the knives, I was on the edge of my seat. <laughs> great, great storytelling is never streamlined. We, we are all wildly complex and we, we assume we have our reasons for doing what we do, but we carry vast amounts of baggage into every decision that we make. So, you know, there was once upon a time a man that Rose loved who married another woman and 38 years went by. And so, yes, I believe that Rose herself is acting on an altruistic impulse, but I, she has a line where she talks about the fact that she has actually been in the process of dying for 38 years. And is that dying a death over 
having lost Robin, having loved and lost, or is she talking about her cancer? Is she talking about not having had a family? This is such an impossibly well-written play. There, if you think about Hazel's mantra, if you're not going to grow, then you shouldn't live. Rose has dissipated over time. She has not grown. And it is a choice. But it also, I imagine on some level, is not an unattractive notion to think about expediting the process. And if she could expedite the process and spend that time with a man she still loves and expedite somebody else's process for whom she holds less affection, is she still an altruist? I don't have the answer, I just have the question. Yes, exactly. Paul, when Robin offers Rose the parsnip wine, and we know that's what loosens the tongue most rapidly, mm. why does he make that decision, decision based on the secrets that she could spill that would expose him? You know, Robin's an interesting character. Um, he wants to die, he says it very explicitly. Um, and this is, it seems to me, and he's been secretly going into the exclusion zone every day, knowing that that's going to hasten his death. Um, you know, if this play is a climax for the life of anybody, it's really, to me, the, a climax for the life of Robin more than for the life of either of the two women, because this is the moment he has both the women he loves there he has been slowly committing suicide, and now he's been given the opportunity to take that final leap. And so I think he's throwing everything to the wind right now, and he's just at that moment in his life where he doesn't care anymore. Look how fast he agrees to um, join her at the, uh, at the power station. So I don't think he cares. I mean, I think this is, to him, the last act of his play. There's a duality, however, at the end, and Pam, I want you to answer this. Robin is literally polluting his body. He's taken a cigarette and he's ingesting these, these toxins as he's cleaning up the sludge, the mess that we could say the mess that Rose has made, or Hazel. Um, talk about that duality, how we as humans destroy as we try to rebuild or repair the damage that we're doing. Well, I think, um it's always about dislocation because uh, I feel like we kind of know that all of this, um, you know, sort of environmental violations are happening, but oftentimes we, we think it's from somewhere else, you know, it couldn't possibly be us. And so, um, you know, I wonder if that's really just another form of, um, really like denial, you know, being in denial about how all of what we're doing right now in taking so much from the rest of the natural world um, is actually hastening our own. You know, I don't think we can actually face that, um, that we're actually hastening our own death and destruction. Paul, you answered the question earlier, but I want to know from Susan and Pam, do you see a reckoning? Do you see more conversations like these happening? What is our moral responsibility to the planet? What is our responsibility to one another? 
um, Susan, to your point about not maturing and not understanding that we're not just here to take and take and take, but that we have to give back. Has the coronavirus, do you think, um, started some of those conversations in your own circles? Pam, you can take so, it first. Yeah. Okay. I, I feel we, we have spent six months now in these smaller loops but thinking about a larger one, we have been in a kind of pause um, where we, if we're choosing to defer from the, the examination, then we're choosing to defer. We're not caused to defer a larger examination. I, I, I feel as if there is this, apocalyptic moment that we're in the midst of. Our, our country is quite literally burning. Uh, our cities are burning with this ongoing racial reckoning. Our resources are dwindling. I think, I think these are, if you're not having these conversations, you're hiding under the bed. Yeah. Pam, same question. Are you seeing these conversations as an environmentalist, as an activist, as someone who has been talking to people about how we are polluting the planet and our personal responsibility? Thanks to you, I cannot walk into a supermarket without taking my recyclable bag. And if I start walking away from the car without it, I'm like, oh man, I gotta go back and get it or Pam would kill me. And that, that's seven years now since that's I first met you. I'm honored. <laughs> I'm honored about that. Um, yeah, I am. I'm actually teaching right now. Um, I've got, uh, you know, a full load of classes on, uh, on Zoom uh, every week with GSU. And uh, yeah, I think these conversations are coming up. Uh, and I think, you know, it might be in a way that we've, we've had to sort of still ourselves and slow down a little. Um, notice what's around us. Um, care maybe a little more for what's around us because you know our immediate environment is now so small that you know there's not a way to sort of walk away from you know a little firebomb that you might have set in the room with your uh, housemates um you, you know so we've got we've got a little more of a compressed um a compressed i don't know life in a way uh so I do think that it is on people's minds. And I, I think that um, especially right at this moment with the election coming up and, you know, the disasters that seem to be uh, amplified daily by the actions of um, the people that are in the administration right now. Um, I don't know. I, I think it's, it's, it's almost surprising when we don't have a conversation like that. So it does seem to come up pretty much every time we all meet. Mm -hmm. Paul, like you, I find Robin a really interesting character. And the scene when he's talking about Fiona and how Fiona had no idea how sad she made me. In the same moment, he's breaking Rose's heart and he seems to have no recognition about that. T tell, tell me about your response to that scene, what you saw there and, and what Robin perhaps did not, could not see in himself. 
Well, I think first of all, it's 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 true that older age looking at young beauty is something that often makes us melancholy. I mean, we were all young once and, and we had the kind of sort of presence and energy that Fiona has. And I think when when older people look at younger people like that, there is a tinge of sadness about it. But in Robin's case, particularly, because Robin is an unfulfilled person. Uh, sure, he chose Hazel, but but he's always been split. He's still split 38 years later. Um, and he doesn't know how to resolve that. And so he's looking for escape. I mean, it, it's remarkable that the one thing he picks when Rose challenges him to pick one thing in his life is this moment where he felt the sadness of his unfulfillment, um, the sadness of his age, the sadness of where he's made his mistakes. Um, another example of him being unfulfilled the way he's unfulfilled in this love triangle he finds himself in. So, um, yeah, I, uh, I thought that was a very poignant scene. And, um, uh, again, I, which, as, as Susan said, the, 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 the grace and subtlety with which it was constructed by the playwright was really remarkable. Susan, what can you tell us about the playwright, about Lucy Kirkwood? I just assumed she was an older woman. I assumed she was in the demographic of Rose and Hazel, and I just heard she is on maternity leave, but tell us a little bit about her. She's astonishing. She does more, this is perfect for this, mm -hmm. this particular story. She does more with less mm -hmm. than most any writer I've encountered. And yet there is a absolute precision to the puzzle of the piece. There is a, a stage direction early on as, as Rose is standing in the cottage door. The stage direction says that she lays eyes on a basket of laundry and can't look away. Tiny, tiny moment. But later on when she talks about the person Hazel is that she at the age of 65 still wishes she could become. The woman who holds up the world. The woman who holds up the world and does so through minutia, but carefully tended minutia. I, I think what Lucy Kirkwood does is scratch at our, at our deepest parts. And she does it in a, in a way with such subtlety and, and delicacy that you don't see it coming. And then you're just done in, right? And the, the work that matters, I think, is the work that you have to sit with and contend with your humanity afterwards, not someone else's, but your own. You've had time to sit with it, so I wanna know how this play changed you what it touched in you. And then Paul and Pam, same question. You guys had, what, two days to read the play? Mm -hmm. Thank you for responding at such short notice. But after hearing it, after sitting with the characters and visiting with them, how have you changed? I, I would, I glommed on to the idea of, am I okay with not getting what I want? Mm -hmm. And what was it in the water that made me think, 
I should get what I want. Because it's a foregone conclusion if you're a striver. And so the opportunity to stop for a moment and question that, it's not a gift I would have asked for, but it's one I'm glad I got. It's anathema to everything that we learned, especially women, you know, having it all and having it all at the same time. But like you, this is the first time I'm even considering that question. Pam, what about you? I was really struck by this one phrase that, uh, that Hazel says, um, I don't know how to want less. Right. And I, I really think that that is, is sort of an embodiment of the human dilemma right now in terms of our uh, relationship to the non-human other. Um, you know, this desire, whether it's for more things or more wealth or more people or more sex or more anything, we just seem to not be able to, to be satisfied with, um, with whatever we have, you know? And, and so that, that seems to extend, uh, you know, we always think about, okay, so, um, you know, there've been dozens and hundreds and thousands and millions of other life forms that have come before us on the planet and who are not here any longer. And we are in this moment of the sixth mass extinction. And, you know, while we are directly a cause for lots of those extinctions happening, are we not also needing to reflect that back on ourselves? And isn't that somehow connected to this idea that we don't know how to want less? And, you know, I, I don't really think there's any other creatures alive that, that are, you know, have that capability to want more than they need um, to the detriment of their own life, you know, I, it, so it's fascinating. And I, I'm just wondering, you know, is this our, our species flaw, you know, is mm -hmm. this what we need to evolve out of in order to um, continue? Did you say the sixth mass extinction? I've never heard that term before. Explain that for anyone else in the audience like me who doesn't know what that means. Well, we are in the middle of the sixth mass extinction, and um, there have been five previous ones, um, meaning that, you know, the rate of, of extinctions that are happening at a time is at a massive peak compared to the baseline of the rest of time. But the fifth mass extinction was the, the age of the dinosaurs when they went extinct. So we are literally in the middle of um, this enormous global uh, geologic scale change and um you know that's something that for whatever reason is not getting enough airplay um and the un even just recently wrote about this um where they're looking back at 10 years ago and the commitments that all these different countries made over uh the 10 years together um to make these certain reductions in in the carbon footprint and the amount of them that have actually been fulfilled is so small. Mm. And these are, these are all the countries with good intentions. Um, and then yet we look at our own, you know, who's signed out of every kind of responsibility um, that there could possibly be. Uh, and, you know, so yeah, I, I'm, I'm just, um, 
I'm kind of mystified by all that. And I just don't know if, if this thing about wanting is not somehow at the core and the center of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Paul, back to the question, how this play, how the reading may have changed you, if at all. Yeah. So first of all, let me echo what Pam said, that what she implied but didn't say explicitly was that this sixth mass extinction is caused by human beings while the others were caused by natural forces. So we have a responsibility for this extinction. Um, but what I was going to, um, one of the things that struck me is, so here they are living in a disaster zone and, um, and a significant one. You know, it's, it's, of course, I think supposed to represent that, that sense of disaster that manifests itself in so many different ways like COVID. And on, on one level, and I think of it on three different levels, on one level, they go about their lives and have their petty, you know, arguments and talk about and, and, and have spats over things that just don't matter, as we, <laughs> as we all do, right? As we all do. At the second level, and here's like one of the brilliant, subtle things in this play, he's burying the cows. Why and, is he and lying to his wife about it? Right. Of all the things to well, be that's worried the petty about. Thing, right. Yeah. But why but why is he doing it? Why is he burying the cows? And I think of that as sort of the mid-level, he feels a responsibility. And you know, he could have just let the cows rot in their carcasses in the exclusion zone. Nobody would care. Um, but maybe in there is a spark of a sense of responsibility. And then there's the third level. I remember my father, who came from a different generation and came from a generation, you know, the greatest generation where people gave their lives up, once turned to me and he said, what is your generation willing to give up its life for? <laughs> and, you know, it was a, it's a powerful question that has stayed with me my whole life. And so the question in this play is, what are they willing to give up their life for? And for whatever reasons, you know, Rose is coming there and says, I'm giving you a reason to give up your life. I'm giving mm -hmm. you a noble reason. And I'm asking you to join me in expressing that ultimate sacrifice to get back to altruism. So, um, you know, I, I think at, I thought about that play at all three of those levels. Susan, when Robin says to Rose, well, it all worked out in the end because I had four and you had none children, it just stabs her. Does he know what he's doing to her? Is it intentional or is he really joking? I started to feel like I was in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. I never knew when people were joking or when they were trying to just destroy one another. So there's this phenomenon where someone rides up a escalator back in the days when we were in public. Together. <laughs> there's a phenomenon where, where a person rides up an escalator and they step off at the top, but they don't keep walking. And they, they, they take in, where am I going to go next? And in that seemingly pedestrian, nothing little moment is an erasure of the person behind them. Right. And a foregrounding of, I want what I want. And right now it's, it's tiny, right? Mm -hmm. Microaggression, we might call it. <laughs> and so I think for Robin, Robin has lived the life of Robin. And I actually think on some level, he believes he's making it okay. Mm -hmm. But it's the, 
you know, they, they, there's a really basic core principle in this art form, which asks not just actors, but audience members to instead of looking at somebody this way to stand next to them and see what they see. That is not typical of human behavior anymore. <laughs> Do you think there was a time when humans were more situationally aware, when we were more considerate of what our neighbor was seeing, taking their maybe, perspectives into account? Maybe when we didn't have 147 channels. Maybe Explain that. We, we live in an age of perpetual distraction. And so the simple notion of, I wonder if, I wonder if he wants the other half of my sandwich. Mm. Yeah. You, these are muscles. These are empathetic muscles. <laughs> and if you're not exercising them, they will atrophy on right. small degrees and great degrees. Until, until it's, it's like the monkey's tail or the human tail that we no longer need. And so it just falls off. Yeah. All right, one of my responsibilities is to check the chat room for questions. So I'm going to do that and I will leave the floor open to the three of you. If you have any questions, talk among yourselves and I'll see if I'm missing any questions here because I cannot multitask. Paul, do you think any of these people are honorable? Oh, I was wondering the same thing. What does honorable mean? I mean, you know, we think of honorable, honorable that's the word, as a pure category, a binary category. Someone's either honorable or not honorable. And I don't, and there are those people. I mean, there are people who uphold just the highest standards of honor. And of course, there are people who are pretty despicable. But in between are the rest of us where we're, you know, honorable sometimes and dishonorable other times. And part of the question is, where do we put our life energy? I mean, is is being honorable, whatever that means in its broadest sense in someone's life, something that we aspire to. You know, you talk about the fact that, that if we don't exercise a kind of uh, psycho-emotional muscle, we lose it. And there's another one, right? Um, you know, one of the old saws of ethics is ethics is how you behave when nobody is looking. And by that, we mean, are you honorable? Um, do you still... Uh, keep to the ethical standards you say you believe in even when there's no one there to hold you to them are they internalized or are they for show and uh so yeah i think the characters have honor i don't think they're always honorable i'm curious if you um if you think that you know we're in a moment of you know, declining morality and declining honor, if that's possible. Anyone? Oh, you're, you're asking that question. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. I was going to say this earlier, but, it, but we sort of went past it. So in this new COVID era, I th there's been a kind of a reset button. I mean, I think that the, the noise of all of our pol polarization has, has obscured it a little. But most of the people I know, you know, I have not, I have not been on a plane since February, which is by many times the longest I haven't traveled in my adult life, because I have a job where I travel a lot. 
um, that has caused me to reset and relook and rethink. You know, um, I'm outside and in the woods, which is something we like to do. We hike a lot, but I'm I'm outside and in the natural world far more now that I'm mostly at home than I could be, even though it was a priority of mine when I was working most of the time. So all of these things are, I think, resetting us a little bit and forcing us to re-examine our priorities. And I'm hoping that once we're through with the nonsense and, and um, that we're gonna see emerging um, a certain amount of rededication to a lot of these values um, because people are being forced to, in, to confront themselves and confront the mm -hmm. ones they love in a much more profound way than when they could distract themselves with all the ways Susan said, plus their jobs and their schools and going to the market. <laughs> Escapism. <laughs> yeah. Susan, did you want to answer Pam's question? I'm still trying to find out if I'm... Mm -hmm. Can you guys see if there are any questions in the queue? I'm just not seeing that. I don't know that it's set um, the, up. The chat, the chat we see, I don't think is a public sees. I have one coming in from text. What is the responsibility of older generations to those that follow? Where do their rights end and their obligations begin? Susan, you want to take that one? Oh, man. <laughs> As you have that Cheshire cat <laughs> grin on your face. <laughs> no, it, it, it's, it's really interesting, right? Um, I mean, it, the children applies to a lot of people that we meet in the play, even ones that aren't um, on the stage. And, and I think about Lauren, the angry 38-year-old who calls her parents five times a day um, to find out how to get her refrigerator uh, warranty activated. Um, and, and Robin makes the observation that she probably won't ever grow up until her parents die, right? Do her parents have an obligation to die so that she can um, thrive? I, I don't think so, but I do think we have, we do have cyclical obligations. There are times when we must parent actively and presently, and there are times when we must bite our tongue and step aside. And I think there's always, there's always a call to share your toys. That's a good put. Pam or Paul, any you ideas know, I, there? I was thinking, uh, you know, perhaps we're one of the few generations um, that are not thinking so much about that. I, I really do feel like, especially um, among indigenous peoples, that they always thought about the future and that it was their responsibility to, you know, leave things as they were in such a way that, you know, life could go forward. And I don't know if it's the the amount of distractions that we have now or some something about you know the sort of corporate mentality um, of success that has created a different mindset where you don't really think about 
beyond your immediate self, your immediate family, um, and maybe your heirs, but certainly not people that you're not directly related to, you know, not as a human family. And so I think a lot of the stuff that's happening right now is we really are undergoing massive revolution on many different levels. Um, I think, you know, we could even look back to Me Too, uh, you know, as a kind of exposing of this, this uh, undercurrent of things that have been going on for a really long time. Um, and Black Lives Matter as well. Um, you know, that suddenly, like, the stuff that's been happening that wasn't really on anybody's radar, except the people it was happening to, is now out for everyone to see, laid out in the open. And so I feel like there is a, a surge right now in in caring. You know, we, ha we have to learn how to care for each other. That has to come first because how can we possibly care about beetles and, and lizards and, you know, small fish in the ocean if we can't even figure out how to care for each other. Right. Um, so I, I do feel like, you know, there is something hopeful about this. And I think in some ways the whole pandemic is symbolic of this broken relationship with the non-human world. And, um, you know, it's probably not happening uh, as fast as I wish it would, but I do think it is happening. I think people are waking up to that. And, you know, again, it starts right here at home with our own species, how we treat each other. And maybe, you know, all of the, you know, nightmare that's happening with this um, presidency is something that was necessary. Like this has all been festering under the surface. And, and so, you know, he became this literal like head of this boil of infection of, of ill will and ill treatment um, that's, that, that's literally exploding right now. And, you know, we've just got to kind of work it out just like the body works out infection. Yeah. And, you know, maybe that's the process we're in the middle of. As you were thinking about brokenness and infection, I just kept thinking about Julius Caesar's, the fault, dear, dear Brutus, lies not in our stars, but in ourselves. This play was all about fault lines and breaking points. Paul, do you want to talk about that? Or Pam, since you're nodding vigorously, <laughs> either of you. Well, I wanted to just follow up what Pam said. I think we, I think we bought into a big lie, um, or, or an illusion at least, that wealth was going to solve problems. Um, and um, so we tried to get wealthier and wealthier and, and in the West and especially in the United States, that became the solution. If we could get wealthier, we could throw more money at a problem and we could solve a problem. And I think the great realization right now is that wealth itself solves no problems and that money even applied well and in great philanthropic intent is not the, um, solution to many, many different kinds of problems. It takes a commitment of self um, and not just writing a check. And so when you, you, know, you, you become the wealthiest country in the world and the wealthiest generation in the history of that country and in the history of the world, and yet problems are festering everywhere, you have to begin to reassess the question of how you solve problems. So I'm agreeing, I, I very much agree with Pam's analysis. I think that what we are seeing 
are all of these symptoms of this underlying disease coming to the surface. And the real question for me, I mean, I hope Pam's right, right. I hope we decide to take the medicine that will help us, you know, cure this disease. But um, there's a lot of people fighting saying there not only is no disease, but in fact, insofar as there's a disease, it is that people are claiming that there's a disease. So, um, you know, that that's scary. Okay, another question from our um, viewers. As concerns about fossil fuels continue to grow, is nuclear power a viable alternative? Are there ethical concerns around its use? I've never been able to wrap my brain around how you can create um, a byproduct that continues far beyond our lifespan to be toxically dangerous. And, you know, I understand the need to shift from the whole extraction fossil fuel economy that we're in, but I just, I just never have been able to, to stomach that, that other aspect of it. Um, it's just putting the problem off on some future generation. I read one, one review of the playpen that said, nuclear physicists never ask how can we leave the world better, which is suggested in this play, but how can we minimize the damage that we know we're going to do? We're gonna give you one thing, but we're gonna take away a big chunk. How can we make that chunk as painless as possible or pain-free? Um, we have a comment from January LeBoy, who is directing Eureka Day, an upcoming production. It seems like the play points not only to the fact that we don't think about our children's future, but that we don't even think of our own. We devalue all human life once it's passed, past its commercial prime. That's a really interesting point. Ooh, Pam, you have a big dog. <laughs> mm -hmm. He just uh, walked behind you. He's actually Ooh. kind of small, but she's... <laughs> 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 who wants who wants to comment on January's observation? One of the characteristics of human history over and over again, and it's nothing new, is the devalue is devaluing life when that life challenges the things that we think we need or want. Um, you know, and, and that happens over and over again in the paroxysms of history where where despots become um, you know, able to convince large numbers of people to destroy the lives of other people. And, you know, is this part of basic human nature? Perhaps. I mean, we see that as part of the way, you know, chimpanzees attack other chimpanzee groups. I mean, there is something in us that pushes us in that direction. And I think the key to being human is how do we manage to create both within ourselves and our individual work, but also in a social structure, um, ways to value others, even as they may be challenging us by, um, you know, forcing us to share resources with them or forcing us to behave in ways that, um, you know, are difficult for us, such as, you know, through um, the way we treat people of other sexual orientations or races or, or, you know, whatever the otherness is. And that is the 
deep, great human struggle is between those two parts of our natures. And every great tradition talks about the two parts of our natures and every great, you know, mythology has some wonderful story about the fighting of the two parts of our nature. Um, and it is, I think, the endless and ongoing and primordial human struggle. Would anyone like to add anything before we wrap up and I give Susan the final word in her mission to change hearts and minds through theater? <laughs> okay, the floor is yours, Susan. Oh, golly. Well, first of all, I have to, I have to thank Theatrical Outfit for um, selecting this play and, and letting us spend time with it. Um, uh, thank you, Matt, for the invitation. And I, I do think if, if for 24 hours, the people who came together and spent time with this story, if for 24 hours, they snapped the rubber band on their wrist now and then and said, I wonder how that makes her feel. Oh, I'm, I'm blocking this aisle <laughs> in the grocery store. Just, just a day of restoring peripheral awareness. Um, maybe I don't need that third delivery from Amazon. <laughs> that that would matter that would matter it might even stick for 48 hours and I think that'd be amazing well I think you're all amazing I knew you would have the perfect final words Susan thank you thank you Paul thank you Pam and I want to welcome Matt I'm a hugger so I have not mm -hmm. been able to welcome our shiny new artistic director of theatrical outfits to Atlanta properly, but we're so happy you're here. And to echo Susan's words, I cannot think of a better debut to introduce Atlanta audiences to who you are and where you're taking us. Good night, everybody. Thank you. Thank you so much. I, I really enjoyed the discussion and uh, I appreciate you moderating us expertly, Gail. <laughs> oh, wow, you're welcome. <laughs> all right, let's see if we can sign off. I can't all even right. see where I end this conversation, but I'm gonna try. Thank Bye, you all. All right, Bye -bye. night, everyone. Good night. <laughs>